the book of Psalms. Uh, we are continuing in our sermon series uh, this morning, Scale the Mountain, worshiping God from the songs of His people. And we are in Psalm 115 this morning. Well, as it is Reformation Sunday, I have a quote that I want to read for you from um, a book called The Unquenchable Flame, Discovering the Heart of the Reformation. It's a great uh, book about the history of the Reformation. So if you're interested in understanding more about the history of the Reformation and, and why this is an important thing for us as a church and kind of our theological tradition uh, and for all Christians, um, this is a great, easy resource uh, to, to, to jump into. Uh, but he talks about this. Uh, uh, the, there's a uh, famous uh, five statements of the Reformation called the solas. Uh, which is just uh, the Latin word for alone, right? And so it is uh, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, uh, and uh, Scripture alone. I almost forgot one. And then to the glory of God alone. And in speaking of the, to the glory of God alone, he says this, <clears throat> Reformation thinking, therefore, had this as its guiding light for all theology. Does the theology lead one to say, to God alone be the glory, or does man retain some of the glory for himself? Does man retain some of the glory for himself? Or does it, do we say, to God alone be the glory? That's really the question for us this morning by Psalm 115. Now, you may think that's a really easy answer. Of course God gets all the glory. Of course. Like, that's what we're here for, to give God all the glory but my hope is this morning that we'll wrestle through ourselves what does it mean to actually give God all the glory and where do we seek to take some of that for ourselves. This is an appropriate question for us this morning because Psalm 115 starts this way. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. The psalmist is declaring, we want to bring you glory, Lord, in all that we do, right? We want to bring you value. We want to declare to the world that you are of supreme value and worth. That's what glory means. Like glory really just means weight, right? And so it means giving value to, ascribing value to, declaring God to be of greater value than anything else. Now again, this seems fairly obvious to us, right? But surprisingly, if we're really honest, we'll see through this text, we're also not that great at doing it, right? If we're going to be really honest with ourselves, we're, always, we're not always great at bringing God glory and so we're going to look today at what it means to bring God glory in our worship of him and in our work in the world. Just those two things. Bringing God glory in our worship and bringing God glory in our work in the world. So first, in our worship. He goes on to say, uh, yeah, not to us, O Lord, but not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. Why let the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he wishes. Now, this is the psalmist writing for Israel in the ancient Near East. And in the ancient Near East, one of the things that the 
uh, Israelites faced over and over again was this question, where is your God? Where is your God? Because you see, for the nation of Israel and for us, right, as God's people, we declare that God is, in fact, invisible. And in the ancient Near East, an invisible God was no God. The nations surrounding Israel would say, where is your God? Ours is in this temple over here. We can show you him. We've got a statue right in here. We can show you. Where's your God? And it was a way of sort of mocking Israel. God is invisible and independent. And this is both a challenge for God's people, and yet it's also the only way it could possibly be, right? The idea that God is not independent from us means that he is no God at all. If he is controllable by us, then we are greater than he is, right? And so Israel was constantly declaring that God, in fact, lives in the heavens and does as he pleases, And that means we don't get to control him. We don't get to tell him what to do. We don't get to be over him. Now this remains both true and difficult for us today. We declare that God, the Father, is invisible and independent from us. And that is something that The world around us is like, okay, well, where's your God? Point to him. Where is he? And we are to declare that he lives in the heavens and he does as he pleases. We do not control him. The alternative to this is what the psalmist goes to next. He describes the nations around him in in, in the the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning. It says, their idols, speaking of the nations, are merely things of silver and gold shaped by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, and eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, and mouths but cannot breathe. They have hands but cannot feel, and feet but cannot walk, and throats but cannot make a sound. And those who make idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. You see, the idols of the nation surrounding them were visible and controllable in contrast to God who is invisible and independent. They were visible. You could point and see them. And the psalmist describes them, right, in using things that you can see. They have mouths. They have ears. They have eyes. They have hands and feet and throat. They can be seen, touched, handled, looked at. But they're also very controllable. They were made. They were made, and they can be moved around. You could pick up an idol and move it to a different place. You could try to appease them with various things. Or, if you just didn't like it, you know what you could do? You could destroy it and make a new one. Because it's simply something made of silver or gold. Isaiah points this out in another place, Isaiah 44, 15, in speaking about idolatry. He says, Then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. With it he warms himself and bakes his bread. Then, yes, it's true, he takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. 
He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. Isaiah is pointing out the craziness of worshiping an idol. You're going to take this thing, this piece of wood, and part of it you're going to make some fire so that you can cook some bread, and the other part is a god that you're going to worship? How's that work? How does that work? It showcases the foolishness of idols, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. You can point to this idol that you have, nations, but it's got eyes, yeah, and it's got ears, yeah, but it can't hear. I could take it and throw it in the fire and it's going to disappear. It's incredibly foolish. It's visible, it's controllable, but it's worthless. Now, you may be saying, all right, pastor, that makes sense. But I don't know if you've been to my house recently. I don't have any idols sitting around. So what are we talking about here? I don't have any idols sitting around my house. I didn't make a fire last night and then make a god. So can we move on? Well, not yet. Because let's see where the psalmist goes next to describe this. He says, and those who make idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. O Israel, trust the Lord. He is your helper and your shield. O priests, descendants of Aaron, trust the Lord. He is your helper and your shield. All you who fear the Lord, trust the Lord. He is your helper and your shield. If something is repeated in Scripture, it's like a huge underline, like bold-faced type, right? Like, remember this thing. He says three times, trust the Lord. He is your helper and your shield. You see, trust is the heart of worship. The heart of worship is not in outward acts of prostrating yourself before something like an idol, but in the interior posture of your heart. It's about trust. If I ask you today to list out your idols, you may say, well, I have none. To God alone be the glory. But if I ask you instead, what do you look to for protection? For help? For love, for guidance, a sense of being all right in the world. What do you trust? What's the thing, the one thing that if you just had this one thing, everything would be okay? What is that thing? Because there is the same answer to where are your idols? It's in what we trust. So what are those things? Is it comfort? Do you arrange all of your life to function around the altar of comfort? No sacrifice or service in any way that interferes with my comfort. How often do we say to one another... That we don't have time to do things. We don't have time to finish all of our homework or to do a good job at work or to serve in the church or to spend time with the Lord. And yet, 
with the alert on your phone that says, hey, here's your screen time for the week, would it answer the same way? Would your streaming platform highlights tell you that you don't have time? Now, this is not to condemn. This is not to condemn. But to point out, you are saying this thing, but really are you trusting in something to provide for you what only the Lord can? Trusting in something that you think will provide for what you need. But does that seem to be working? I know for me, just speaking for me, when those things are highlighted for me, I don't get this overwhelming sense that my life is okay. In fact, I feel mostly the opposite. That this thing that I think will provide for me what I really need actually doesn't do that. I actually don't feel more okay in the world. I don't feel that I have more protection and help in the world. I don't actually feel like I have more comforts. I actually have less. doesn't seem to be working. What about money? Money is controllable and visible. Our controllable and visible trust. If we could just earn enough to be safe. Now, now I want to make a little sidebar here, right? The reason that these things that we're talking about when it comes to idolatry for us is hard is because it doesn't look exactly the same way as it did in the ancient Near East in terms of physical idols. Often in our culture, that's not how it works, right? But it is functionally the same thing. But what makes this so much more difficult is when Moses comes down off the mountain. Remember, we, we talked about this in Exodus. Moses comes down off the mountain, and Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. They just gave me a bunch of gold, and out came this calf. I didn't do anything. It's like, that's exactly how we respond when we get caught with our idols, right? Like, Lord, I don't know what happened. I, I, it just came. I didn't actually go down that path over and over again like I always have. But whatever, right? right? And, and you, what does Moses do? Burns up the calf, and then spreads it in the water and makes him drink it, right? Which is pretty gross. But it's kind of what we have to endure. We have to actually drink the fruit of our idols, too. However, here's the difficult thing, right? That was a physical idol, and it, you know what Moses did with it? He destroyed it, okay? Are you saying comfort's an idol or money's an idol? Destroy it. Get rid of it all. That doesn't really work. That's why this is more difficult. It's why it's more subtle. It's why it's more difficult. Money is a good thing. Comfort is a good thing. It's actually hard to identify these idols because they are good things that our hearts make into ultimate things. Things that we put our trust in. Which actually is the same as in the ancient Near East, right? The idols were gods of local places and things for very real needs. Like fertility, crops, sun, rain, all of these which are good things then turned into ultimate things. 
We've taken out the physical making of the idol, but we still do the same thing all over the place. So what does it mean to trust in them? Trust, this is where it comes to. And this trust, when it comes to money in particular, is one of the most difficult things about following Jesus in a relatively wealthy country. It's easy to assume my life is taken care of and my basic needs aren't in God's hands because I can provide for it with the stuff that's in my bank account. Right? Now, for some of us, that's not always true. For some of us, that's not always true. And I have found in working with Chris and the deacons and the mercy team that those in the greatest need often display a great faith that I don't know anything about because I don't have to ask that question. Now, the church ought to show up to help people not have to ask that question as we thrive together. Absolutely, right? That's why money is a good thing. We should provide for one another. It provides for our needs, all those things. And yet it's a tricky thing because what it does is gives us a sense of control about our day. That it's not really based upon God's sovereign care, but upon my hard work and the money in my bank account. Right? In the ancient world, if there was a famine, there's nothing you could do. We have ways of mitigating those things, right? And yet, that control is still an illusion. It's an illusion. I mean, think about it. The only reason our money has any value is because we've agreed it has value. Like the piece of paper that you hold or the credit card that you have and the, you know, numbers in the cloud that exist, it's literally all it is, right? It's we've agreed upon this thing has value, right? It's still an illusion. God is in control. And we need to recognize that when we place our trust in something as an idol, it will fail us. It will not provide what it, ha- what it says it will. And so the question is, do we trust in it? Do we trust in it? How are we to know if we're trusting in it? How are we to know that? Well, the same with comfort and money, I think, and, and really all of these that I'm going to talk about is, Uh, some basic questions we can ask ourselves to know if we're trusting in it. How and why do I use it? How and why do I use it? Do I justify things I know to be sinful and wrong, according to God's law, in order to get it? It's a pretty good sign I have trusted in it. Are my affections, we've talked about affections throughout this sermon series, right? Our will and our emotion and our mind, are our affections tied to it? That based upon how it goes affects how I interact with other people, how my day goes, how my week goes, how my month goes. I am in uh, my sense of well-being is tied to how this thing goes. And am I willing to give it up? Right? This is the question that the rich young ruler and Jesus has. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, doing all right, according to what you've just said. 
Ah, give up your money and come follow me. And he goes away dejected. He goes away dejected. Now, Jesus doesn't ask all of us to give everything away. He did do it there, so it's not something outside the realm of possibility for Jesus to ask us. But what it displayed was that this man was trusting in his wealth and not in God's provision for him. Are we giving and stewarding in a way that displays the generosity of the gospel and avoids our trust in money and breaks our idolatry? Okay, so maybe it's not comfort for you. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's one of the other major idols of our culture, which is romantic love. Romantic love will solve everything, right? We say that we are a culture that really has a healthy understanding of these things, and yet it's very clear we don't. The reality is, Every single entertainment thing that we do has some romantic love angle. Why? Because it's an idol of our culture that we need. We need it, right? Can't even watch a football game anymore without a romantic love angle, right? Swifties taking over everything, right? but, But the reality is it's this thing that sells in our culture because it's a thing that we all believe will fix our problems if we could just have it again the question is am i willing to abandon biblical teaching and ethics to pursue what makes me happy maybe that's an idolatry and beyond simply my natural desires all of us have natural desires that we have to deny in order to not make idols out of anything which we're pretty good at doing As Calvin famously said, our hearts are a factory of idols, right? Just produce another one. Get rid of that one, we'll just produce another one. We're just a factory of perpetual idols. Problems that arise in relationships often are tied to the reality that we have made one another idols expectations that we walk into saying, this person will fulfill all of my needs and desires. They will be everything for me. And that's not even something that we say is like, okay, well, maybe not have that. That's like the, that's the gold standard of our culture, right? Like that's the dream, having the person that will fulfill everything. It's just not the way God made people to be made us to be in community with one another. We need more than just one other person. So our expectations are off, and maybe it's not just because we have a relationship issue, but maybe it's because we have a worship issue. Not just romantic love. We can make another good thing into an idol. Our family can arrange our lives and schedules and everything to fulfill the desires of my immediate family, maybe ignoring some of Jesus' call to the family of God, ignoring worship, ignoring the call to sacrifice. And one of the ways that we can see this is, do we entrust our families to God, 
Or do we trust that if we do all the right things, the family will be perfect to the outside world and fulfill all of our desires? Here's the thing. When we make love or family, either of these things, our idols, for us, it makes us worship them or hate them. Because when your idol doesn't do what you want it to do, you hate it. And for the other person, it dehumanizes them. It makes them into an object that we control for our benefit rather than a person that we are to interact with who's made in the image of God. Rather than independent image bearers that we do life with under the authority of King Jesus, we seek to control for our fulfillment. Tell me again what the difference is between that and a statue with eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. Right? It's the same thing. We're trying to make other people a little statue that does what we tell it to do. That leads nicely into the last one. Power. Power and authority. Am I willing to break God's law to maintain authority or power? Do I use authority for my own benefit and not for the benefit of those I lead? That's controllable. It's intoxicating and idolatry. It's not just simply an abuse of power, but it's an idolatry that ignores Jesus. Now, this can happen not just on big-scale things, but also in very small ways. All relationships that we live in in life have some sort of power dynamic to them, right? Whether that's in a family or in a workplace or in a school setting or in a church setting, any of those places, there are differences in relationship based upon authority. You can abuse power in any of those places. And it can be because you are making control and power an idol in your life. And it can happen from those in power and from those not in power. A jealousy that trusts that if I simply had the power that that person has, I could do what I want. See, here's the thing about sin and idolatry. It kind of cuts everywhere. We're kind of all just guilty of it. So maybe you guys feel like I do currently, which is, okay, help. Because I have some idols. What do I do with them? What do I do with them? Well, we can't smash them, right? The answer isn't just like go away into the wilderness by yourself, right? This is, we've talked about this before, the desert fathers and mothers of the church, part of their challenge was they were like, we got to get away from the world so that we could be with God. And then they got to the desert and they were like, wait a second, all of my sin followed me here. I couldn't get rid of it. What do I do? Well, what does he say here to us? What does the psalmist say to us? Oh, Israel, Trust the Lord. He is your helper and your shield. Oh, priests, trust the Lord. He is your helper and your shield. All you who fear the Lord, trust the Lord. You see, the way in which we run away from idols is to hear a better story. 
to hear the true and better story, to trust the Lord. To trust that the Lord will show up. To trust that the Lord has done all that you need. He has already provided for everything. And for Israel, all throughout the Psalms, they're always constantly looking back to the ways in which God has showed up in the past. Do you remember? We were in slavery in Egypt and the Lord showed up. And then do you remember? Not only did that happen, but as soon as we got out of there, you know what we did? We disobeyed. And the Lord showed up. We can tell the fuller end of that story. You know what happened? God fulfilled his promise to come himself. To come in the person of his son, Jesus. To live amongst us. To die for us. Then to come up from the grave to never die again. So that any and all who what? Trust in the Lord will have eternal life. The way we break our idolatry is to remind ourselves that we're a part of a better story. We're a part of something far greater than what comfort or money or love can provide. We're a part of the mending of the world. We're a part of the new heavens, new earth coming. Where Jesus promises to make all things new. We're a part of this new reality in which we are given forgiveness, mercy, love, and invited to worship the God who is in the heavens and does as he pleases. You're not going to find a greater reality. That's why the psalmist starts with, not to us, but to you be the glory, God, because we need to remember the way in which we break our idolatry is to see the more glorious thing. The far more glorious thing. We are so quickly, our hearts are so quickly distracted from one place to the next. And it's always distracted seeking for glory. We're seeking for the better thing, the better experience, the better reality. Jesus is the greatest reality. And he says, if you're weary from running around looking for those things, come to me. I'm right here. Come to me. Trust the Lord. Okay. You may be thinking, okay, got that. Right now, I've got it. Trust the Lord. All right. But what about 10 minutes after I leave this place or Monday morning when I'm busy with all these things, what, like, what happens then? How do I remember this then? It brings us to our next place, not just the bringing glory to God in our worship, but also bringing God glory in our work. Part of the reason we actually struggle with all of these idols in our worship is because we fail to see that worshiping God is more than bringing him glory in formal worship settings like this, but bringing him glory in all we do, in our daily work and callings, in our vocation. Right? A fancy word just for our calling. 
our work, what God has given for us to do in the world. And that's where the psalmist goes next. It says, the Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the people of Israel and bless the priests, the descendants of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both great and lowly. May the Lord richly bless both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens belong to the Lord, but he has given the earth to all humanity. The dead cannot sing praises to the Lord, for they have gone into the silence of the grave. But we can praise the Lord both now and forever. Praise the Lord. What does he say here? God made the heaven and the earth. The heavens belong to the Lord. What did he say earlier, right? Our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. The earth he has given to all humanity. This is incredibly profound and I think should shape so much about what it means for us to bring God glory in our daily lives and in our work. Some of the ways we fail to do this is, first, we, we reverse this a little bit. We think the heavens belong to us. And so we elevate what it is that we do in the world, bringing us glory and not God. Elevating our calling. This is actually a, a particular temptation for folks in full-time ministry like me. It's very tempting in the church to say that there's something more God-honoring about what I do than what you do. And that's not true at all. And actually, my job is temporary. In the new heavens and new earth, my job goes away, right? Jesus is right there. Go talk to him. You don't need to talk to me, right? But all of your callings remain. My calling is not more important or more God-honoring than yours. We must not think that our job lies in the heavens. Kings, rulers, politicians, employers, CEOs, plumbers, trash collectors, teachers, fast food employees, waiters, waitresses, counselors, pastors, lawyers, librarians, students, drivers, all of those exist in the earth, not in the heavens. There is one who lives in the heavens and does as he pleases, and that's the Lord. All the rest of us live on the earth, and the earth is given to all humanity. We cannot elevate our calling to be more fundamentally better or important than someone else's. They're different, but not more important. Maybe the more subtle and certainly more common way in which we fail to do this and bring God glory in our work in the earth, is by not recognizing God's blessings. Right before he says, he has given the earth to all humanity, what does he say over and over again? The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless us. He will bless us. May the Lord richly bless you. May you be blessed by the Lord. Again, repetition is really important. You know what the psalmist is saying? The earth, yes, is yours to steward, but it's a gift. It's a gift to you. You know what else is a gift? Everything you have to steward your calling in the earth, it's all a gift. It's all a gift from the Lord. It's all part of God's blessing upon your life. We say not 
to God, but to us be the glory when we believe that we're self-made, that we do this thing, and it's us and not a blessing from God. When we attribute all of our successes to us and our hard work and the way in which we have done things, we're saying to us be the glory, not to God. God has blessed us. And the blessing that God has given us gives us the opportunity to steward what he's given us in the world. We also do this when we ignore the blessings and calling on our life and run to idols rather than steward what God has given us to see the kingdom of heaven on earth. What's the prayer that Jesus offers or teaches us? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, wait, the psalmist just said the heavens belong to God. So when we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're saying is, Lord, in the earth which you have given to image bearers to steward and to care for and have dominion and cultivate, would you have it be as though you yourself were in charge? That's the prayer. How can that be if we don't trust him enough to use our gifts? You see, one of the ways that we do this is is not simply by saying, I did all this and ignoring God's blessing, but by knowing that God has blessed us, but failing to use that blessing because we don't trust him enough to use our gifts. We don't trust him enough. We don't trust enough to risk doing the right thing, to risk what it would mean to use our gifts. And instead, we'll just hide in our idols of comfort. Instead, we'll just hide because the shame that we feel about using the gifts that God has given us is too much. So we'll just run to our idols and not actually take seriously the calling that he's placed upon our life to make the world the earth, more like heaven. More like God's in control. To shape it in such a way. Friends, we need to trust. Trust that he is our shield and our helper. So the earth is ours for his glory. That means our work in the world is good. We are to cultivate the earth. We are to shape it. Instead of shaping idols, we are to shape the world in such a way that things are used for the glory of God and for the good of others. So that means, friends, if we're to do this, if you're to worship God and to bring him glory in your work, you need to find your gifts. You need to recognize God's blessings in your life. And give him the glory by trusting him and doing what God intends for you to do in the world. Here's the thing. You can't discover that on your own. you got to do that in community. Right? Because sometimes we have this idea that we have a gift that we don't really have. Right? Like if I were like, guys, my gift is basketball. So I'm declaring... Glory of God in my work, I'm going to the NBA. Some of you should sit me aside and say, I don't think that's going to work, right? 
We need to be in community together. If you're going to do this, if you're going to bring God glory with your work and your worship, it requires, it's not possible to do unless you're in community where people know you. Unless you're in community where people really know you and your gifts. We got to be open and honest with one another. We got to build that community. We got to show up and care for one another and have a place in which we can, without shame, say things like, I'm going to go to the NBA and have someone in love tell me, well, that's not going to happen, right? Like we need to have that kind of community of truth and grace and openness because in there, gifts will flourish. That's the place in which gifts will flourish. It's the only way in which we can discover these things about one another is to know one another in a place of trust and care. But the other implication of this, friends, is that God will do what he wants in the world through human agents. Right? The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. But given the rest of the psalm, you know what it seems pleases the Lord? To use you and I to do what he wants in the world. That seems to be what pleases him. That he uses the church to bring about the things in the world that he's trying to do. Now, he's going to do it whether you show up or not, right? It's one of my favorite lines in the book of Esther. Mordecai says to Esther, like, hey, it's going to happen. The Lord's going to do what he wants to do. Do you want to be a part of what he's doing or not? Maybe you're actually here for that very reason. God's going to accomplish absolutely what he wants, for sure. Do you want to be a part of that story? Do you want to be a part of what God is doing in this city, in your life, in the life of your neighbors and friends? We recognize so many of the problems of our world, but are we willing to be part of the solutions to those things? Are we willing to show up? Because it's going to cost us to do so. And yet it will bring God all the glory. The way that we worship God and not idols in both our worship and our work really comes down to the same thing. Recognizing God's blessings and trusting him. How is it that we trust in idols like money, control, power, comfort? It's by enjoying those things and finding our life there. Right? The, 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 the reason we end up beginning to trust those things is because they're good things, and we just enjoy them. And then we enjoy them more, and then we enjoy them more, and then we, right? So how do we gain trust in the Lord? Enjoy him. Enjoy him. Right? This, this is the crazy thing about the gospel. Our God is not a mean tyrant idol who says, bow down and worship me now. Otherwise, I'm going to withhold all good things. Actually, he gives good things to those who mock him because he's gracious. Rain falls on the wicked and the godly, right? The Lord is exceedingly gracious. Run to him. Test that. Enjoy him. 
Go to him. This is the one sure promise in the world. If you would run to the Lord Jesus and seek to enjoy him, you will find life everlasting. You will find all that your soul is looking for. He is worthy of our trust in our worship and our work because he loves us. Because he's done everything to bring us near. And he is good. So, City Hope, trust in the Lord. For he is your helper and your shield. Let's uh, stand together and we're going to recite the end of this psalm together as we've done throughout this sermon series. We're going to start in verse 14 and we're going to kind of read this together. This is meant to be corporate for us, remember, community, for us to recite to one another. May the Lord richly bless both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens belong to the Lord, but he has given the earth to all humanity. The dead cannot sing praises to the Lord, for they have gone into the silence of the grave. But we can praise the Lord, both now and forever. Praise the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we come to you now. And we bring you glory and honor. Lord, we want to trust you. Would you help us to trust you so that we would know your love and your care? And God, that we would know and see your work in the world. Lord, we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.